Hello and welcome to the Righteous Remnant podcast. If you'd like to support our ministry or find out more about us, you can do so at therighteousremnant.org. All right, welcome to the Righteous Remnant. This week, we're going to be continuing on a series that I've started on it's a theological series, but really these are just introductions to some concepts that I think are not well understood in the body. Um, you know, in time I am planning to do more in-depth studies on these, but these are really just intended as kind of introductions to get the ball rolling, get people used to some of these concepts. And, um, <clears throat> you know, some some people who know me have said that the way I think as a pastor is different from many or maybe even most pastors. And I, I think there's some truth to that. I think there's some truth to that. And that's because um, I tend to put some of some scriptures together differently than others, okay? Now, to be clear, I think these are all issues of minor doctrine, okay? I think everybody that I know were on the same page in terms of major doctrine, right? Um, but, you know, pastors draw that line differently. Where they put major and minor doctrine, it's not super clear when we're looking at the scripture sometimes. Um, but generally speaking, yeah, I think some of the way that I piece together minor doctrine is a bit different than other pastors, other um, denominational traditions, something like that, okay? So I'm going to get into one of those areas that I think is a little bit different, and today we're going to talk about holy ambition, holy ambition. And this is something that I've become increasingly convinced about over probably the past five years or so of studying scripture and um, and in teaching. And um, let me give some backstory. So, you know, when I was a young believer in high school, high school is really when I, I started walking seriously with the Lord. Um, when I was a young believer, um, I was really convicted that I needed to crucify and surrender all my ambition to the Lord, right? And so, you know, at that, when I was in high school, I really wanted to go to an Ivy League college or university. And I remember um, I decided, you know what, I'm going to surrender my choice of university to the Lord. And I'm just going to say, Lord, you know, wherever you want me to go, that's where I'm going to go. And I kind of made a decision that I wasn't really going to seek out um, one of the private Ivy League institutions. And partly is because I didn't want to put my parents into a place where they would have to pay all of that tuition. Um, but partly it was part of that surrender. I was just surrendering and saying, God, you know, wherever you want me to go. And I, I remember, you know, I made the decision of, okay, God, if you want me to go to a, a UC, a University of California, because I was living in California. Um, I was like, all right, I, I will do that. Now, as it happens, I actually got rejected from um, all the Ivy Leagues. I didn't apply to that many Ivy Leagues, but I got rejected from all the Ivy Leagues anyway, so I'm not saying it was a huge sacrifice per se, but there was a decision that I made um, to say, God, I'll go wherever you want me to go. And, um, you know, I went and I visited um, Berkeley, and man, my visit to Berkeley was amazing. I happened to be visiting while the campus fellowships were doing a joint um, outreach, and it was amazing. They were all wearing shirts. All the Christians on campus were wearing shirts saying, I agree with um, Paul, I think it was. And this was an outreach put on by Crew, um, Cameras Crusade for Christ, it used to be called back then. And um, the idea was that this guy named Paul 
who was a student, was going to preach a gospel message, and all these students, you know, all the Christians were wearing, sure, saying, I agree with this person to kind of provoke interest in that talk that he was going to give. And um, what happened was I, you know, I was visiting colleges to see if I wanted to go there, but I spent probably two days um, just evangelizing along with the other Christians um, on campus. And I, I loved it. Like, to be clear, I'm not, I don't consider myself like a strong evangelist. And back then, um, it's not that I was super skilled at evangelism. I didn't convince anybody to become a Christian. Um, but just seeing like, the, being able to live my faith like that and having other people that were doing it, it was so, it was so provoking to me in a good way. And I, and I met some believers up there during that visit that were really serious about their faith and they had a prayer group. And I was like, I just felt like this incredible confirmation from the, from the Lord. Like, this is where I I got to go. And um, when I look back on it, I think that was actually one of the best decisions of my life, right? To go to Berkeley because um, it wasn't about the school. It really wasn't. It was about what I felt like the Lord had provided a place for me to thrive and to grow with him in a community. And um, I just use that as an example um, because... It, it, I think surrendering this um, idol, I don't know if it was an idol at that point, but surrendering this dream of mine, this ambition of mine, and saying, God, I trust you with it, and I want to go wherever you want me to go. That was just one example of a decision that I think was actually an extremely good decision that I made in my life, right? And um, that became the pattern for my life, where it was constantly, I'm going to lay down any type of selfish ambition. I'm going to surrender it. I'm not going to be concerned about those things, right? So um, later on in my life, I got offered quite a bit of money to lead worship for a fairly large church. Um, and, you know, that at that time in my life, that was kind of like my dream job, you know? It, like I loved leading worship, and this church was going to pay me much more than I had ever been paid to do what I already love to do. And um, and I prayed about it, <clears throat> and I felt like the Lord said, do not do it. And I ended up accepting another worship position at another church, and they paid me far, far less, you know. Um, but that was an example of me saying, God, I'm going to trust you, you know, rather than whatever ambition or you know, worldly position that I would, I would want, you know. And to, to be clear, I'm not trying to say that you should always choose the less paying job or something like that. And I'm not saying that that's always God's will for you. I'm just saying in that circumstance, I prayed about it and I felt like the Lord actually did lead me to, to take that one. And, um, what I'm, what I'm getting at is this was the pattern for my life, right? I'm going to lay down what I think is, you know, what I would want for the sake of trying to be a servant for the Lord. And I, I think that has, has had very good, um, a very good effect on my life in terms of my faith. All right. Now, that being said, over the years, what I started to notice is that there was also a downside to this, okay? And it's that um, without a strong ambition in my life, I felt like I wasn't as motivated as I otherwise would be because it was kind of like, well, God, you know, whatever you want is fine with me, right? And I'm surrendered to that and, you know, have your way, Lord. And I'm just living this kind of surrendered life. And, you know, I already talked about some of the benefits of that, but what I felt like I was discovering over time was that there were weaknesses to this. And I didn't have 
a motivational drive during certain seasons of my life. And to be clear, it's not like I had no motivation. And at some in some seasons, I really did have strong vision that was pushing me and propelling me. But what I'm saying is that there wasn't like an overarching paradigm of what I really should be going after, you know. And um, and it's in this context that I started to get convicted by many different scriptures, and I started to realize that I had a weakness here. Like I it I did I had very little ambition, but I started to realize that that was wrong. I it, I th- I thought as I read these scriptures, man, I think God is saying that I should have an ambition. It's just that I should have the right kind of ambition and not the wrong kind of ambition. Okay. So what I want to do is I want to take a look at some of these scriptures. Okay. And where this, you know, conviction started to arise is when I really started to examine many scriptures that talk about rewards. Okay. So for example, um, in the book of Revelation, Jesus talks about in chapters 2 and 3, right? These are the famous letters to the churches, right? Where Jesus is writing these letters and he's giving them through John to seven churches in Asia at that time, okay? And um, at the end of each of those, you know, little letters, he has a part about, um, you know, to him who overcomes, I will give this reward. And he talks about a reward, okay? And, um... And it really struck me because what Jesus is saying is that, hey, if you overcome, I will give you this reward. And I'm trying to tempt you with this reward, right? Like, I want you to want this reward. I want you to want it so much that you're willing to overcome all the difficulties and trials that you're going to be facing in order to get that reward. And, you know, that whole paradigm was somewhat foreign to me. Because I was like, well, shouldn't I not be doing any of this for a reward? You know, like, I remember there's this Keith Green song that I love, right? Oh, Lord, you're beautiful. Your face is all I seek, right? And when your eyes are on this child, um, your grace abounds to me, right? And the, the, the chorus of that song talks about, you know, how I should never seek a crown. Let me never seek a crown because all of this I'm doing just for love right? And I really bonded with that idea, right? That I'm not in this for myself. I'm not in this um, to get something out of you, God. I'm doing this because I love you, and I just want to serve you and be with you. And that message, I lived that message for so many years of my life. And I still strongly believe that message, right? The problem is that Scripture talks about rewards. Scripture, Jesus talks about rewards and how we should desire them and want them. And so I realized that there's something wrong with my theology here, okay? And to be clear, I I preach and live the message of intimacy, okay? I do think that having intimacy with Jesus is what makes it worth it, okay? It's just that I think there's a better theology that's not just about intimacy, but also includes an understanding of holy rewards, okay? And that they work in... in connection with each other. They're, they should be intertwined. They should be complementary to one another, okay? And they're not at odds. And the the secret to this is that what the scriptures teach is that there will be eternal rewards that are given on the day of judgment, and we should eagerly desire those. But we don't get those in this lifetime, right? So in this lifetime, we have to be satisfied with Jesus as our portion in this life, Right, so intimacy um, is our portion 
in this life that sustains us until we get the full rewards and the full intimacy in the next life. Okay, that's my current understanding now. All right, and um, you know, as we're getting back to Revelation, you know, I'm talking about how Jesus is offering all these rewards, and um, at the end of Revelation, he says, you know, in t- chapter 20, he says, "I'm coming soon, and my reward is with me, and I will give to each person according to what they have done." All right, and again, we're we're coming back to this theme of works, how important our works are and how they're going to result in rewards if we do rightly, and that Jesus is not like, you know, I know many pastors that would be like, oh, all those people that are living for some kind of reward, they're they're off. They got it wrong. But this is Jesus saying this. <laughs> all right? you, can't, you can't argue with Jesus. Jesus is the one saying that I'm coming and my rewards are with me to give to each person according to what they have done. He is the one talking about the importance of works. He is the one talking about the importance of these rewards. And I started to see that several times throughout the scriptures when Jesus talks about don't store up treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, but store them up in heaven. He's not saying, his point is not, don't worry about treasures. That is not his point. His point is that you should esteem, you should honor heavenly treasures, not earthly treasures. And I think a big part of the problem is that we, whenever we think about treasures, we just think about the earthly ones, and we don't really have a paradigm for heavenly treasures, so we interpret that as don't care about treasures. But that is really not what he's saying. He's saying don't care about earthly treasures. Instead, care about heavenly treasures. Store up your treasures in heaven. And um, there's more scriptures. John 5. This is when Jesus is arguing with the Pharisees. Okay, and um, in verse 41, he says this, I do not accept glory from human beings, but I know you. I know that you do not have the love of God in your hearts. I've come in my Father's name, and you do not accept me. But if someone else comes in his own name, you will accept him. How can you believe since you accept glory from one another, but do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? All right. All right, now I want to pause here because this is getting in the same idea, like do not seek glory. That I think most Christians would agree with, right? We should not seek glory. But that's not actually what Jesus is saying here. He's saying don't accept glory from one another. Okay, the accolades, the titles, the, you know, the honors that people can give you. Don't go after those things. And Jesus straight up says, I don't accept any of that stuff. Right? He's saying, if you give me a title, I don't care. Right? It doesn't mean anything to me. Your titles mean nothing to me. Right? Why? Because he understands that humans are bad at giving accurate titles. They don't understand the things that are really valuable. Right? So their titles are meaningless. And in fact, a lot of times they can be deceptive. And that's what he's getting at. Right? That these Pharisees, they accept honor and glory from one another. They're fighting for who gets the most, you know, prestige amongst them in this life, right? But he's saying, but you do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. And again, when I first read this, when I first really examined this, I was like, man, what does that mean to seek after the glory that comes from the only God? Because, you know, we have this idea like, oh, I'm just going to, you know, be faithful to the Lord and then he's going to reward me, but I'll not have earned anything. Right? It'll all have been grace, you know? It'll all because I deserve only 
you know, suffering and torment and death and condemnation and shame forever. That's what I deserve. But on that day, you know, he'll raise me to life and I'll get eternal life and that'll be all grace. And I think that run that paradigm runs into conflict with scriptures like this. This idea that we should be seeking glory from God. And it's this idea that we really should be seeking after glory on that day, right? That the the judgment that we receive on that day, that that is what we should be concerned about. And we should be hoping that God will glorify us, all right? We want him to glorify us on that day. And again, I think a paradigm or an ambition to be glorified by God is not common in the body of Christ, Okay, it's usually this emphasis that we're to die to ourselves, that we're to empty ourselves of all ambition, that we're to do everything out of, you know, just a sense of obligation, right? I don't deserve anything. Um, I don't expect anything, but God, I'm, I'm working for you out of my obligation of love, something like that. And again, to be clear, I think there's a lot of truth in that. All right? I'm not trying to say that that's wholly wrong. I'm trying to say that that is incomplete. That is not the only motivation that Scripture says we should have. Okay, And I'm trying to give my own story as part of this because I personally wrestled through all of this. Like That paradigm didn't make sense to me early on in my walk, and I really did for a long time live under this, this idea that we're just supposed to do it out of gratitude and not supposed to seek honors, not supposed to seek glory, and I am now convinced that that paradigm is wrong. Okay, I'm now convinced that that paradigm is wrong. All right, one more passage. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. All right, this is a famous passage where Paul talks about running the race. And it says this, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training, and they do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave, so that after I've preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. All right. I think that this passage is a very hard passage to interpret because, again, it sounds like salvation by works. Okay? It sounds like he's talking about how he disciplines himself so that he can be saved. And my guess is that he's not really talking about salvation here. He's talking about a crown. All right? He's talking about glory that some believers will get and some believers will not get, all right? <clears throat> and I think that this paradigm that Paul has, that he is working, he's laboring for a prize that will last forever. I think what his paradigm is, is that he desires a crown. And his paradigm is that all believers should desire a crown. And he's saying that I do, this is why I discipline myself, and this is why you should discipline yourself, so that you can get one of these crowns. And again, my paradigm on this is that not every believer gets a crown. I think that speaks of a, a position of rulership that you will have in the age to come, and that that's not guaranteed to all believers. I think all believers, all true believers, are guaranteed eternal life, but not all believers are guaranteed riches and authority in the age to come. 
And I think that that's what Paul's talking about here, that these crowns, they signify authority that you've received in the age to come, rulership, and that that's not for all believers, but that that should be our ambition. That should be our ambition. We should we should have a driving ambition in our lives to do all this. And he's going to talk about like the reason why he's able to pour out his life and you know, deny himself and not seek after earthly glories is because he's fixated on these eternal glories. And I am just convinced that that is <clears throat> the necessary paradigm that we must have, right, if we're going to overcome trials and hardships in this life. And I, I think that this is um, really hard for many believers because, look, this is what I've seen just as a pastor and living this myself, is that if you're going to follow after God, I think you're going to have to go through many trials, all right? I think you're going to have to sacrifice, you know, money that you otherwise wouldn't have had, wouldn't have had to. I think you're going to have to give up positions of influence. I think you're going to have tests of integrity in your life that will cost you, right? Like where it might cost you a position at work, right? It might get you fired at work, right? It might mean that you're you're not going to be highly esteemed in your in your field. And um, I think that it's very difficult for Christians to make those choices. It's very easy for us to rationalize and be like, hey, you know, everybody cheats a little bit, and you have to cheat in this industry to get ahead. You have to lie a little bit to get ahead. You have to be dishonest. I mean, look, just being, like, to give one example from my own life, right? Um, I was on staff at a church, and the the leadership of the church wanted all the pastors to seek ordination with our denomination, okay? And I had been previously ordained, but they wanted me to get ordained by this denomination. And um, and so I started the application process, and um, one of the things that they asked me was, do you agree with all the doctrine of the church or of the denomination? And um, and I didn't. Okay, to, to make it clear, like the the denomination was the Assemblies of God. One of the you know core minor doctrines of the Assembly of God is that they believe that tongues is the evidence of the baptism of the Spirit. Right, so every believer is supposed to speak in tongues because every believer is supposed to be baptized in the Spirit, and that's something I don't believe. Okay, I don't believe that tongues is for everybody. All right, when I read First Corinthians twelve through fourteen, I think Paul it, he says, "Do all speak in tongues?" I think that's in First Corinthians twelve, and he's implying that no, not all believers speak in tongues because we're gifted differently for, you know, for mutual edification because we need one another. All right, so that's my understanding of the scripture. So I disagree with AG doctrine in that case. All right, and to be clear, I really love AG. I think AG is one of the the best denominations that are out there personally. Okay, um, but I disagreed with that, and so I marked that on my application, and I said, hey, yeah, I disagree with this because I believe you know that that tongues is just one gift out of many, but I do encourage all believers to be filled and or baptized in the Spirit. I think that's a good thing. So. From my perspective, I'm like, yeah, like I would think that they they have a lot of people that disagree with that particular point of theology, and that they would be somewhat understanding. They were not. All right, I, my application came back; it was flagged, and I'd have a conversation with you know my senior pastor at the church, where I explained my position, and he was like, "Yes, I understand your position. I understand why you think that way. Now I want you to mark on your application that you agree with that doctrine." And I was shocked. I was like, you're 
telling me to be dishonest, to lie. And you're saying, I have to do this. And I, I, I'll just be honest, I was in a moral quandary at that point because it seemed like I was selling my integrity, right? Like, it, why should I have to sell my integrity, right, to get some type of ordination that, frankly, I don't even really care about, okay? I don't feel like I need AG's ordination, right? Um, but I was in this kind of quandary. And um, I made it really clear to the pastor, I said, okay, you are telling me that even though I am explicitly telling you I don't agree with this doctrine, you want me to write it on there. And this was very difficult for me. And, um, you know, to make a, a long story short, I I believe I marked that I agreed on the application, but I decided to to never follow through with the application process. I was like, I'm, I'm not going to do it, you know? And um, now luckily, that pastor ended up retiring and the person who took over didn't really care if we were ordained AG, so it never became a fireable type of thing. Um, but it very well could have, all right? And um, that this is just one small example, all right? Um, I think all of us face these types of tests in our life about, hey, to do this, I have to compromise my integrity a little bit, just a little bit. You know, I'm not breaking the spirit of the law, just, you know, the letter of the law or something like that. Or, you know, um, and I, I think it's very difficult because it's like, it doesn't seem, it's really not that big of a deal. And um, it seemed like a lot of the other pastors did that. Uh, look, I don't want to say I know for a fact, but I'm fairly certain that almost none of the pastors at my church fully believed in AG doctrine. <laughs> but... A lot of them went through that process where they were getting ordained, and I have to assume that they all marked that they agreed with all the essential AG doctrine to do it. So this is one of those things where, like, okay, everybody's doing it. You know, everybody's doing it. What do I do? All right? And um, I have to clarify here, I am not trying to, you know, speak ill of any of the pastors that were on, because they're, they're phenomenal pastors. A lot of them were really great. Okay, so I'm not trying, I'm just trying to say, this seems like one of the things that is very common in many cases. And I bet if it's happening in, you know, the church world where, you know, integrity is supposed to be one of the core values that we have in our world, I can just imagine how often this is happening elsewhere. All right. Now, the reason why I bring this up is because I think life is full of these types of tests, okay? I think life is full of these types of tests where if you want to keep your integrity, if you want to do what's right to God, you're going to have to sacrifice things in this life. And some of the sacrifices are major. Okay, I just pointed out a really small one. Okay, this is just a small one. I think you're going to have to sacrifice other things, um, and many of them are, are, big, are a big deal. Okay, and it seems like well, I could just do this little compromise, and it's going to be so much better for me. I'm not going to rock the boat. All this kind of stuff. Um, but I think life is full of these types of tests. Okay, and I am just convinced that in every way that it costs us something to retain our integrity with God and to do what's right in his sight. And every way we show that we fear God more than we fear man, I think we get a reward for it. And I think 
that really the only way to do this consistently is to have a strong paradigm for how much better the heavenly reward is going to be than the earthly reward that we would have got. I think we need that paradigm. I think it's essential for believers to have that clearly said. Because if we don't have that, if it's just, hey, we're all going to get the same reward when we go to heaven. We're all going to, you know, because none of us deserve anything and it's all by grace and, you know, we're all going to get the same thing. Then it doesn't make any sense. Logically speaking, it doesn't make sense that we wouldn't compromise small bits of our integrity right? That we wouldn't do things that we need to do to get ahead because we can always justify it. Well, it, it, you know, hey, if I don't compromise in these ways, then I won't have any influence. I won't have any way that I can actually do good for the kingdom. I have to compromise so that I can get, you know, the position or the influence or the authority that I have so that I can do good things for the kingdom of God. I think all of us are tempted to compromise for that type of reason. The ends justify the means, even though we wouldn't put it so nakedly often. All right, And I'm not trying to say that I've always done the right thing. I don't know. I can't think of anything off the top of my head or haven't, but I'm sure there have been times in my life where I have compromised and I just can't think of it right now. Okay, I'm, I'm, This isn't coming from a place of superiority. This is just trying to lay out this issue, right? That this is hard. We have to have the paradigm of receiving glory from the Father. We have to have that paradigm in order to deal with all the ways that we're going to be tempted to compromise in this life, okay? And this is part of why I'm convinced that there's many people that are going to be greatly glorified on the day of judgment and we'll be like, who the heck are those people? They didn't do anything impressive on the earth, right? Like, when we think of who are the people that God's going to glorify, we think of like the big names of history, you know? It, it, you know, if we're going to embrace this paradigm, it's going to be like, it's like Martin Luther and John Calvin and I don't know, like these heroes of faith, Mother Teresa, and you know, these are the people that are going to be greatly glorified in the age to come. And it's it's possible. Like, I'm, I'm, I don't know, right? I don't know, but that's the point, right? The point is God is the only one that sees those types of decisions that cost us in this life, and he promises to compensate us on that day for those things, right? This is the whole idea. Blessed are you, right, when you're slandered and reviled and insulted, and blessed are you when you suffer for the faith, you know, for the sake of of doing what's right in the sight of God. And isn't that exactly what happened to Jesus? Isn't that exactly what happened to him? He could have manipulated or compromised whatever, to become king of Israel. If anybody could have played the game perfectly, it would have been Jesus, right? He could have played that game perfectly and become king of Israel, and then he could have done a lot of good, right? But he did not. But by human standards, he failed the game. By human standards, you know, he the leaders of Israel turned against him, and and they crucified him, and he failed in his mission, right, to become the Messiah and the king of Israel. Right, um, but we know, looking at it, no, he didn't fail. He did exactly right. He passed every test. He never sinned. He never compromised his integrity. And even though that resulted in him losing, from a human perspective, he's greatly glorified by the Father. Right, as an example to us. And that's the same thing for so many leaders in Scripture. Jeremiah. Jeremiah failed. Okay, by any metric of human success, he failed. Right, he did not turn Israel from their sins. He was not an effective prophet. They did not listen to him, and he just suffered and was persecuted because he wouldn't shut up 
right? He kept rocking the boat, and he wouldn't just shut up even though nobody was listening to him, right? And, and yet, we know that even though he failed in his life, from a human perspective, he's greatly glorified by God, all right? He's greatly glorified by God because he, he did not fear men more than he feared God, and he was obedient. And the same thing with John the Baptist. John the Baptist, at one point, had the most you know, popular ministry in Israel, okay? As a minister, he was wildly successful. And then it fell apart. It fell apart. And he and his ministry, you know, died and his disciples were freaking out about it. But he had the wisdom to say, like, no, it's right. It's right that my ministry should die, right? Because I must decrease. He must increase. That's This, this is my job. This is what I, I'm a servant, right? I'm not about having a big ministry. I'm about playing the role that God's called me to play. And so he sacrifices his ministry. And and then, does it get better? And then he does the right thing, and so God rewards him, and he gets twice the big as big a ministry as ever before. He becomes one of Jesus' greatest apostles and all kinds of stuff. Is that what happens to John? No. John can't keep his big mouth shut, and now he's got to rebuke the king of Israel, Herod, right? And he's got to rebuke him over the issue with having adultery and all this kind of stuff. And, and he's rocking the boat too hard, so he gets imprisoned. And then, you know, the way it's supposed to work, right? He gets imprisoned, but God sends an angel and delivers him out of prison. And no, that's not what happens. He goes to prison for rebuking the king, right? And then he gets executed, right? There's no happy ending to John the Baptist story. It's just a sad story, right? And yet Jesus is the one who says there's been none none born of women greater than John the Baptist. I say this because I'm I'm getting emotional because I can't imagine that that faith. I can't imagine the faith that would live as John the Baptist did. He denied himself his whole life. He eat locusts and honey in the desert, you know, like he did everything right. How did he have the faith to do that? You know, he wasn't even one of Jesus' apostles. He, he wasn't allowed to live with Jesus and follow around and learn his example. He somehow figured it out himself. And I'm like, how the heck did he do that? I don't know. Because <laughs> it's so hard to know if we're suffering for the sake of righteousness or if we're suffering because of our, our own stupidity. You know, and I, I have to think that John the Baptist was kind of in that same place when he's in prison. And he's like, is this how it's really supposed to go? Like, God, I've been faithful, and he writes this letter to Jesus. He's like, are you really the one that we've been waiting for, or is there another? You know, it's it, it's not that I think John doubted Jesus' messiahship, although that is possible. I just think he, he wasn't sure what's happening here. He's like, is this how it's supposed to go? And um, I think it took incredible faith. And I feel the same way about Job, right? incredible faith. Job, you know, it was probably one of the first books of the Bible ever written. Job didn't have the example of anybody else, right? He didn't have the example of other people who've suffered for the sake of righteousness and, you know, were rewarded by God. He didn't have that example. He was just going through the suffering and and, and so confused, like, God, how, why is this happening? He didn't know. He didn't understand. And there's so many leaders all throughout scripture that went through the same hardships and difficulties and I'm always so impressed by them because they didn't have the Bible. They didn't have all of this, the, the wisdom that is given to us. They didn't have the stories of how it turned out for everybody else. They didn't have a lot of that stuff. And yet they were faithful, 
you know, and it, it always blows my mind. How do they do it? Right. And, and I say this to us because we have the blessing of all of this history and all of this scripture where it's laid out for us. It's not laid out as clear. I, I do think God makes it somewhat confusing. He makes it hard to understand the Bible. I think it's a type of test for us. So I'm not saying it's as easy as it could be, but I am saying it's there. Like the, the, the information is there. And um, it's an incredible blessing for us. And we need it because if we're going to go through a great tribulation, if we're going to go through um, the greatest tribulation in the history of the world, I think we're going to need this understanding. I think we're going to need a holy ambition that's driving us, okay? Um, and that's my encouragement for every belie- every believer that we would have a vision for the glories of the age to come, that we would have a drive, a longing in our hearts. I want to be glorified by the Father on that day. I want it so much more than anything else. I want it more than being rich in this life. I want it more than, you know, getting to the top of my field. I want it more than any prestige or honor that I could receive in this life. The Nobel Prize, whatever whatever honors there are in our respective fields, uh, that we would consider them trash. I think that's Paul's point, right? Like, I once valued all these things. I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them rubbish, garbage, compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, right? And I think this is part of his paradigm, right? That he understands these accolades are really nothing compared to the true honors that we have the opportunity to receive. And and he understands those honors and he's running after them with all of his heart. And he's urging all the other believers to do likewise. I think that is the biblical model. All right. Okay. Enough for this. God bless you guys. I hope that was helpful.